think ignorance is a really big barrier for being able to have true compassion and understanding and empathy for someone. If you don't understand what it is that that person's even experiencing, you're not going to be able to respond in a compassionate way because you're going to come at it with your own biases, your own lived experience, right? We all do that. And so if we're willing as people to open up our understanding and and to let our paradigms shift, our ways of thinking shift, that's what's going to allow people to become advocates, to advocate for people in their own lives. Everyone, welcome to another episode of Live Right Now. Today we are talking with the Family Crisis Center in Rexburg, Idaho, and they help people who have experienced sexual abuse and trauma and help them get more stable in their lives. We're meeting with Chloe Aponte, who is their representative, and talking with us today. Chloe, welcome and thank, thank you. you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and, and then what, what brings you here and just kind of what you do. Yeah, so my background is, is in prevention. All, all the professional work that I've done has been in prevention. And so public awareness is a lot of intervention, but it's also based on prevention principles. And so for me, I've worked in different sectors of the community, but it's always in kind of in that prevention lens, if that makes sense. I was a BYU-Idaho student and ended up just staying in Rexburg, so I've been here since I graduated. But yeah, I I think the mission of the Family Crisis Center is really what drew me to this role in providing services for survivors of domestic abuse and sexual assault and stalking and child abuse, like you had mentioned, some of those. Kind of those those services are so important, not only here, but I mean, those topics are so highly stigmatized that that causes just an additional barrier for survivors seeking and then receiving the support services that they need, if that makes sense. So I really love my job and I'll be talking a lot more about that and why I love it. But I think a big part of it as well is the team that we work with. So we have 11 full-time employees. We have nine part-time employees and we have about 18 volunteer on-call advocates that run our crisis line. So generally speaking for those who don't know, what do you guys do and how does that work? Yeah, so we provide services for residents in Madison, Jefferson, Fremont, and Clark counties and those support services are for survivors of any of those types of abuse that I mentioned. So it can be current or it can be past abuse. But our on-call advocates are, are able to res- respond on scene with law enforcement, and they're trained to do that. They go through kind of a pretty intense training so that they know how to do that in a trauma-informed way, in a way that's going to be most appropriate and helpful for clients. And then, so that's our 24-hour crisis response, but then in our office, we're able to provide any immediate crisis counseling through our advocates and then continued casework with them as our clients come in and express kind of what it is that they're currently experiencing, what brought them in. There's usually a catalyst, something that's happening or that happened that kind of triggered whatever is going on in their life, right? So maybe it's past child abuse experience and then they were just sexually assaulted and that's bringing up a lot of things for them, right? So we provide services here and then connect them with services in the community as well. So our advocates are not counselors, um, but we do provide that crisis counselling and then all of that ongoing casework is making sure that they do have access to 
food and clothing from our thrift store and our food bank. They have access to applying for our transitional housing program, or if they're in imminent physical danger, they can be in our shelter as well. And then we have counseling referrals and pay for a certain number of counseling sessions for them and those agreements with the community. We have scholarship programs. We can help them with their address and making sure that they have confidentiality that way. We can help them if they're here on a work visa, like maybe they're an international student and or just someone who's here working, even if they're not a student. We just work with a lot of students. Um, we can help them kind of navigate the legal process as well on top of their victimization. So that's going to be an additional barrier to them of even wanting to seek services if they're not a citizen and they've been threatened by their abuser that whatever, you know, coming forward or sharing information is going to make it so that they have to leave or their kids have to leave or whatever it is, right? And so we try and address as best we can all of those barriers and give those resources to our clients so that they feel empowered to do what they feel like is best for them. And that's kind of the main, that's super important, is that we don't fix anything for our clients, we don't tell them what to do, we give them resources based on what they're telling us, and we let them decide. And I think that's huge for their healing and for that empowerment because that's been for all of them, you know, that's been taken away from them. They've been so isolated and so powerless because of the abuse that they have experienced or are currently experiencing. So that was kind of a long way of answering your kind question. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So tell us what, what should people know about these victims? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. That's a that's a broad question. I think we we have to remember that, and I've kind of said this in different ways, is that survivors already don't think that people will believe them or and or they feel like in some way they've done something to deserve the abuse that they're experiencing and that's because of either you know like overt or covert messages from their abuser that they deserve it people when they feel that way either all of those things or some of those things aren't necessarily like <laughs> rushing to share their story with people they're not necessarily rushing to say hey like this is something I've experienced maybe they were intoxicated or they were using and they were assaulted right and for them like there might be a certain level of shame of I was doing this thing that I do feel badly about and then I was assaulted so I must deserve it and that's not that's not the case right that no one deserves to be abused in any way that right doesn't get taken away just because of other things that somebody's doing. And that's just an example, like, that's not always the case with our clients, right? I mean, we have a lot of clients, especially in this area where 90% of the population is one dem one religious demographic. We have so many clients that are experiencing religious abuse, and they don't want to come forward and talk about that because they don't what people are going to feel about it or what their opinions are based on what they're experiencing. So like abuse from a leader? No, just using religious principles or wording to perpetuate abuse. So usually abuse isn't just one layer. There's you with like domestic abuse in a home between spouses. There's almost always almost always also sexual abuse happening. There's almost always some form of child abuse happening to the children in the home. There's almost always some form 
not some, I mean, there's always emotional abuse, there's, there can be financial abuse, there can be spiritual abuse. Very, very rarely do we see one isolated form of abuse in domestic abuse cases because an abuser will use every way that they can to maintain power and control over someone. And so they're using every kind of facet of that person's life and their life together to make sure that they don't leave and that they don't tell anyone and that they can't get out, even if it's just emotionally, right? And so when that's the case, you know, we want our clients to know that there are ways legally to deal with that, but then there are ways outside of the legal system to be able to feel safe, even if it's emotional safety and not just physical safety, if that makes sense. So that's kind of a piece of an answer to your question. I think for a community member, that's mostly my answer to survivors, I guess, is that we believe you and that when you come in, you're not going to be judged. We're not going to tell you that you deserved it in any way, right? I think for a community member that's maybe supporting someone who's a survivor or that, you know, they've disclosed something to you as, you know, maybe a friend or a neighbor or at church, something like that. I think that same, that same information goes, like, believe that person and and validate what they're feeling and what they're experiencing. That's not something that they typically have in their life, right? They're not receiving that validation typically. I think we need as a community, as a nation, as a world, to educate ourselves more, to educate ourselves more on what domestic abuse and sexual assault and child abuse are so that we can respond appropriately and so we don't continue to perpetuate you know, the cycle of abuse for these people right. when they're just coming to us with with a desire to be heard, if that makes sense. Yeah, so tell me a little bit more on what you mentioned a moment ago that sometimes people feel like they deserve it. They don't... What if the victim doesn't want to be a victim? Yeah. How have you been able to help people in situations like that? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the verbiage that we use. So as staff, we're, we're trained to use, like, victim, or not, I'm sorry, not even victim. We're trained to use, like, survivor-centered centered language. So a lot of, like, social work practices where we're, we're letting them identify what it is that they feel instead of us saying, oh, you're a victim of domestic abuse. We won't ever tell someone what it is that they're experiencing. We let them tell us. And then as we educate, hopefully it gives them language for them to say, I have experienced this, you know? I think that's a big thing for people is that they just don't have the language of what it is that they're experiencing. So I think language is a really, really important piece of healing as well. When we treat people as people first, and then as you're a person who has experienced sexual assault, you're not a sexual assault victim, Right? Or not even, you're not a sexual assault survivor. You are a person who has experienced this. When we put person first, I think that, again, is part of the empowerment piece of it, of, of that language then lending itself to, to healing for someone. So many, if not most, if not all of the staff, the volunteers or interns have experienced some form of, form of abuse in their life. And so I think that also helps when we interact with survivors 
it helps us interact in a way that maybe we would have wanted or maybe in a way that feels gentle or feels like you understand what it is that that person's going through even if they're just coming into the food bank to get food and they're not a client upstairs with our advocates right like those interactions matter for people because that's going to make the difference of whether or not they disclose what they're experiencing and we see that all the time we have people that come into our food bank in our thrift store and kind of feel it out and see how people react to them or maybe just sharing like little pieces of information with our staff downstairs and then they come up and say, like, I wanted to make sure this was a safe place. And that is huge. Like, obviously, it's huge to make sure that our volunteers and our interns and our staff are all using language and are all treating anyone who comes in, just the general public, right, with that type of respect and mindfulness, if that makes sense. So talk to me a little bit more about becoming an advocate for people. What are some things that that you do or that, that people might do in order to be coming from a good place? Yeah. A place of compassion and non-judgment and, and openness and love. Yeah, I think a way to do that is to make sure that you do have like a foundational working knowledge of what abuse is and what it isn't. I think ignorance is a really big barrier for being able to have true compassion and understanding and empathy for someone. If you don't understand what it is that that person's even experiencing, you're not going to be able to respond in a compassionate way because you're going to come at it with your own biases, your own lived experience, right? We all do that. And so if we're willing as people to open up, you know, our understanding and and to let our paradigms shift, our ways of thinking shift, that's what's going to allow people to become advocates, to advocate for people in their own lives. I mean, you don't have to be an advocate in the professional sense to be an advocate for someone else. You can do that just by allowing yourself to learn and to be immersed in something that is uncomfortable and unfamiliar to you, right? Like abuse is an uncomfortable and unfamiliar territory for a lot of people unless they've experienced it. And even then, like I said, they might not have a lot of the verbiage if that's never been shared with them or that's never been talked about with them. And if they're, you know, not in a place where they have shared their own abuse. So I think that's that's what I would say is I think addressing our own biases, our own paradigms and making sure that we're allowing ourselves to think and just to critically think beyond what we have in the past. I think that's what helps us advocate best for people in our lives. That's really powerful, and it appears to be something that would be universal as well in, mm-hmm. in creating empathy and understanding. Yeah. It seems to be human nature that we just look at, unless we, it's something we have experience with, we all have sort of certain biases and, mm-hmm. and pre, preconceptions about things and people and yeah what has what has that journey been like for you if, if you can share just a little bit on how you have uh, become more of an advocate for people and, and gain that compassion and understanding yourself yeah that's a good question I think the base of it obviously came from just I mean I went through a training that's you know recognized throughout the state of Idaho to advocate but I think on top of that I mean that's kind of a professional level On top of that, it's just connecting with survivors and being willing to hear their stories, I think has helped with that advocacy piece. 
I think doing my own research, whether it's through books or trainings. We do have like some ongoing training requirements, but I think it's just because I'm immersed in it as a professional, I think there's so many opportunities for me to learn and to hear maybe on the outside it looks like the same experience of another individual, but to actually hear their story and to hear how different it is because of their own lived experience or because of their own ethnic, like, ethnic background or maybe because of their gender or gender identity. Like, there are just so many things that influence a survivor's story. And I think for me, I have tried to challenge the way that I think just because I think that way, right? Like, I don't need to continue to think a certain way because I've always thought that way. And I think that awareness has helped me in seeking out more opportunities to hear different stories, if that makes sense. And I do that, I, I, and that just happens anyway because of my job, right? Like I'm interacting with so many different types of people and, and hearing so many different stories. But I think you can hear a story, but then you can also listen to a story. And I think that's the difference is if you're willing to listen to what it is that they're actually saying and allow it to then impact the way that you interact with the next person. Because when you know more, you can hopefully do better, right? You can hopefully interact in a more informed and a more compassionate way. And so I think it takes a lot of effort. It does. It takes a lot of effort and it can be emotionally taxing because you have to be mindful. But I think doing that is worth it for me because it's not only impacted me professionally but as a person and connecting with people on like a human so so what i'm getting is that in order to really empathize and see people truly Mm -hmm. uh, and and validate and value their experience you need to have an understanding of what they're going through whether having gone through something similar yourself or at least having a general understanding of what they've gone through so that experience piece and then i'm also hearing the verbiage or the frame Mm-hmm. Being able to describe it and understand it in yeah. a meaningful way. I've heard that, for example, people that go to therapy, you know, someone might be experiencing something for years, but then when they go to therapy, they get some verbiage mm-hmm. and they can finally describe it and they say, oh, I've had depression or oh, yeah. you know. And so what? any other thoughts on that? I think that that's huge. I mean, we obviously advocate for mental health services. That's really very healing for most of our clients sometimes it's not in the moment that they're coming in right they might be other like immediate safety issues that they need to address before addressing their emotional safety like physical safety right if they're in imminent physical danger of someone like they're going to address those safety issues first before seeking mental health services but I think my hope is that when clients do come in and when survivors do come in, they are gaining that verbiage. They're gaining that understanding of, of what it is that they're experiencing and and they're, they're being given options of what they can do about it. And they didn't previously have that, right? And I think that's the same for anyone who's supporting a survivor. When you gain more verbiage and you gain better understanding, it opens up your ability to help them as well. So it's kind of, I mean, it's a system. It's not It's not a linear thing, right? Like, it's all very cyclical and intertwined. 
the way that the community responds to a survivor. And, and it seems like there, I mean, from what you told me the other day and, and this conversation, there seems to be such a network mm-hmm. uh, and, and a system to it. So what I heard earlier, and if you could kind of elaborate a little bit more. So you mentioned you have crisis response, you have advocates, and then you have resources for food, clothing, house, scholarships, and education and confidentiality. Yeah. So just kind of generally speaking, if, if you could touch on this again, what is, what is the process for helping someone, let's see how I wrote it earlier, helping someone become secure and move forward in life? What, what does that look like for them in yeah. meeting those needs? Yeah, so first off, that process is on a different timeline for everyone, right? So yeah. we might have a client come in and they only need to come in a couple times and then they feel like they have a handle on it and they can continue on with their healing elsewhere, right? Sometimes we have clients that come in for years and years and years because they need that continued support. Like that's that's what they need at that time. That um, like mental health support. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we also provide like support groups every week. So I think that peer support is huge. The support of an advocate is huge because it provides them with language. It provides them with someone who understands what they're going through, right? Which maybe if they're not accessing mental health services for whatever reason, whether it's their insurance or they can't pay for it or like they've already used all the sessions we're able to pay for, right? Like whatever it is, they're able to then connect with an advocate and gain some perspective that way of like, I'm sorry that that's what you're experiencing. That sounds really hard. Just that acknowledgement is huge for people, right? Of to just to be seen for what, what it is that they're going through and for someone to say, yeah, like what you're going through isn't okay. That's not what you, what you deserve. And I'm really sorry. Like, how can I support you? What are you needing right now? You know, our advocates do that on an ongoing basis because people's needs change. So like I mentioned, kind of those support services, what it looks like is somebody can call or come in either after hours or during the day, and then they're connected with an advocate and our advocate kind of does that intake of like, tell me why you're here. Like, tell me what brought you in to our center. And usually that opens up a lot of conversation from someone, right? Of, well, this happened and then this happened several years ago and it's bringing up these feelings or it's bringing up like now I'm not feeling like I'm able to continue working in my job or whatever it is, right? Like abuse has impact not only on someone's emotional health, but on every area of their life. Like you're a lot of survivors won't be able to continue working or maybe they've never worked and they need to work now because they want to leave the abusive situation they're in. And so part of those services are job training. We connect them with a lot of different people and support networks within the community for that so that they can have kind of that financial stability, which is obviously huge for someone if they're wanting to leave and they've never worked outside of the home and maybe they have kids they have to care for, like they need to have some sort of independent finances. And so it's teaching them about budgeting and it's teaching them about how to pay their rent and their utilities and how to get a job and how to file their taxes and right like even if our advocates aren't the ones doing that we're facilitating 
those interactions for our clients and we're making sure that if they want us there as a support we're a part of those meetings so another piece of it I didn't really go into the legal side of it but a lot of people do come in seeking like protection orders for them and their kids if they have and so we walk them through that application process we ask them if they want to you know, report to law enforcement. If they say yes, law enforcement can come here. We partner with them so that they can come here so it's more comfortable or an advocate can go with the client to an interview or a meeting, like any sort of legal meeting to court. We accompany our clients to court as well, any court proceedings. So, I mean, it's really, (laughs) that's the thing about our services is that our list is pretty extensive because it's based on what our clients need and if it fits within our scope and within our network we're able to support them that way and so every case looks different because of that for sure wow so it, it sounds to me like a very empowering system and I, I just keep wondering you know why why don't we see more of this you know and, and how could how could this model be applied to other other types of abuse or other other needs in the community or other nonprofits and things like that. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think applying a model like like a wraparound community model would require everyone to acknowledge all the things that are happening in our community, the good and the bad, right? There is so much good that happens in our community and there's also a lot of bad just like any other community. And I think, excuse me, I think it would require not just kind of the social services realm, but every other sector of the community to care as much as we do and to invest as much time and as much money as we do. I think that's really what it would take. I think it takes people in positions of power (laughs) and positions of influence to care about it enough to do something about it. And I think, I mean, that's that's true of any kind of social service, right? Like if we care enough about it and we have people that have the money and the means to, to help with an issue, that's what's going to help with an issue because people listen to people like that, right? And so if if we had that, I mean, if we had that worldwide, we could eradicate... <laughs> Abuse. We could eradicate violence against women and children. We could eradicate world hunger. We could eradicate all these social issues that we think about as like, oh, this is really terrible. Like, I wish somebody could fix that, right? If the people that had money and power put their efforts towards it, it could be eradicated. And that's just the truth of it. We don't because we care about other things, right? People care about other things and they would like to to ideally think of a world that doesn't have all of that or they know that it has that and they would like to focus their time and money on other things that's just kind of the truth of it right and we know that like we know those things so I think that model is only as successful as the people that run it is really what it comes down to is if there's community buy-in if if people are invested in a cause you still have to have money to do that you still have to have influence to make it move forward and for to make it sustainable if that makes sense which is hard most of the social services are nonprofits, right so there isn't a ton of money going into those things and yeah it's interesting 
That's an interesting issue, for sure. That's a good question. So with that, tell me a little bit about, I mean, what, whatever you know about the background of this organization, tell me a little bit about some of the hearts and minds that, yeah. and, 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 you know, why, you know, why does this organization exist? Where did it come from? Sure. So the Family Crisis Center was incorporated in 1987. So we've been around for a little bit, but it was founded in mostly because of a family here in town, the Ferguson family. They had seen that there was a shelter for domestic abuse survivors in other areas, and they wanted to have something like that here. And so they donated a house to be a shelter and then asked someone to run it, who was our founding director. She's now retired. She retired just a couple years ago. But Margie was kind of that like founding director. She was running it by herself. <laughs> she was kind of running that crisis response as a shelter. That's kind of like our main service that we were providing at that time because of the need that was seen. So our shelter is still called the Ferguson House based on the family that kind of started it. But she started with the shelter and then saw and the board saw a huge need for other services, right? And so that's when, you know, Over the years, more grants were applied for, so more funding was attained to be able to fund more programs, more people were hired to be able to run those programs, kind of that framework was built up to what it is today and all of those services, right, which we still provide the shelter service, we still provide, even though it's a different house, we still have a a shelter But because of those efforts, because of like a few people in an area saw a need for it, that's kind of where it came from, which is awesome that they cared so much about it to make it happen, right? So yeah, 1987. So we've been around for a little bit, 35 plus years, which is pretty cool. That reminds me of a quote by, I gotta look it up, but she said that, I'm not sure exactly who said it, and I I know this quote, so it's funny that I forget the the author, but she said, never, gra- never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. Mm-hmm. And, and she said, indeed, it, it is the only thing that ever has. Mm-hmm. And the organization that I, that I run, I, I mean, we call ourselves the change the world club. And it's just kind yeah. of based on that idea of let's, let's meet together on a regular basis. Let's take a problem or an issue or an idea yeah. in the community and let's talk about it meet on a consistent basis, decide on action steps, follow through, and just do what we can using what we have to make it happen and and learn as we go. Would you say that this organization has kind of grown with a similar idea? I think so. I think obviously the first time they ever applied for a grant, right? Like they had probably never written a grant before and didn't know exactly what type of programming we needed for our area or exactly what type of services were needed. And so as, you know, over the years, you kind of, over the years as you reapply for funding or as, it, or as you, you know, seek out additional funding, you're able to hone in what it is that you need based on what your clients are telling you, right? We collect a lot of data and, and we have to use that to obviously inform what it is that we're doing if we're getting the feedback just because we think something is awesome, but we get the feedback from our clients that they're like, this isn't working. The system doesn't work for us. We're going to need to change it, right? Like we're not just going to continue with the system that doesn't actually work for the people that it's designed for. (laughs) And so I definitely think there's been a lot of evolution because of that, of making sure that we're addressing 
the actual concerns and the actual barriers that our clients are experiencing and then being able to you know provide additional support in the areas that we are doing well and saying hey like this is really working we need to be able to provide this on a bigger level and so we need additional funding for that or we need additional partnerships for that so I definitely think that as we evaluate it changes and and it kind of grows to to what it needs to be to address all of those issues exactly like you said wow that's that is a very hopeful message i think yeah that you know that whatever organizations exist that are doing good in the world they they weren't always the way they were but they became that way yeah and and if you want to do good in the world you can develop yourself and you can you can grow and and things so i we we are running running out of time but just to wrap up Tell me if there's any, based on the questions I emailed you, was there anything else that you wanted to share? And then a couple couple questions at the end. Anything I want to share? You've given me a lot of opportunity to share, and I appreciate that. I think, I think it's so important to be able to discuss it, so thanks for being here. I think, I don't know, I think what's coming to mind is that I hope anyone who listens to this or anyone who has this mindset already and is developing that within themselves, I hope that we continue to listen to each other's stories and to respond in a compassionate way. That's my hope. I mean, that's my hope for anyone here that seeks our services, but that's my hope in my own life, right? That anytime I share information, I'm I'm, received with compassion, right? That people are responding to me in that way. And so I think that's just my hope for our community, for our nation, for our world, is that we can all develop that within ourselves and that we take the time and we're mindful enough to do that. I think that's just really the thing that keeps coming back to me, for sure. That's awesome. That's powerful. And with the one thing that we really try to emphasize with Live Right Now is is what does it mean to live right now and then mm-hmm. to give your gift to the world you know and, yeah. and and that can include you know any any hard things you've come through sure. and what are what are the wisdom that you've learned and how how can you bless others but it seems like there's a huge mental health part of that you know mm-hmm. getting yourself to a good place to feel secure about yourself wrapping up tell us a, just a little bit more about why mental health is so important mm. and how that can help us when we when we figure it out you yeah. know for ourselves to be able to contribute and help others i think um i know for me mental health services have been really really important and i attend therapy regularly i think one it gives you language like you said i think it helps you understand yourself and the things that you've experienced right? Like that understanding is so empowering. But I think when we get to a place where we're actively working on our mental health, right, it's not a destination, like that's a continuous effort that we're always going to have to participate in. But I think if we're in that mindset of, of getting to a place where we are so mindful about our own mental health, it allows us to live authentically and allows us to share our experiences and our gifts with other people. Like, I believe in that a thousand percent. I believe in being able to show up as you are, good, bad, ugly, whatever it is, but as you are, and using all of those things to better the people around you and to better your own circumstances and the circumstances of those around you. 
And so obviously mental health is going to play a huge piece of that, of, of being able to actually acknowledge what it is that you think and feel to show up as an authentic person for yourself and then to be able to do that for other people. You have to do that first for yourself. You're not going to be able to interact in you know, a productive way if you're not doing that for yourself, if you're not honest with who you are and what you want and what you believe, right? And, and I think that is what's so powerful is that our authenticity is so unique and so diverse and it's that diversity that allows us to connect with each other. It's not the sameness that allows us to connect. It's the di- diversity. And I think that concept is something that I didn't understand as a person growing up, right? Like, like I'm still developing that, and I think I always will, is that the diversity is what gives us the ability to connect with each other and that we are same in that, right? We're same, and we are one because of our diversity. And so I think that's my hope, is that we all are willing to invest in our own positive mental health and our own authenticity enough that we can show up as our true selves for each other. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Live Right Now. This month, throughout the month of May, we are focusing on mental health and how we can understand and support those who have mental health struggles and also how we can overcome and cope with our own challenges with mental health. Our goal really is to discover what are the actions and choices that we can take that will bring us positive outcomes for ourselves and for others regarding mental health. Please comment and share your experiences on our social media posts and videos and continue the conversation. We look forward to having our discussion in in the middle of the month about mental health. So look forward to that and stay tuned for another episode of Live Right Now. We'll see you next time.